You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about sleep-disordered breathing. Joining me, I have two experts from the Sleep Medicine Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. First, Dr. Ariel Williamson, who's a psychologist in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and in the Sleep Medicine Center, and Dr. Ignacio Tapia, who's an attending pulmonologist in the Division of Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine, also at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Excited to be here. Thank you very much. So let's talk about sleep-disordered breathing, which impacts up to 17% of youth, with symptoms ranging from snoring to the most severe form, which is obstructive sleep apnea. Untreated sleep-disordered breathing is associated with hypertension and obesity, asthma complications, neurobehavioral and academic impairments, poor quality of life, and in the most severe cases of obstructive sleep apnea, a sevenfold increased risk of death. Now, the AAP recommends screening for sleep disordered breathing at every well visit, yet this issue remains under-identified and under-treated. So can you talk about some of the barriers that both providers and patients face contributing to this disparity? Absolutely. You know, from the primary care provider side, you're just being asked to do so much. I'm not a primary care pediatrician, but work alongside many and know that there are so many asks. And so there's not a lot of time. And in many cases, there are not built-in questions to the medical visit template, for example, that really flag this for pediatricians among the many other things they need to screen for. At the same time, we also know from research that in medical school, although there is some information on sleep disorders and how to promote sleep health, this is really limited in many ways. And, and there's not a high dose of training for providers. On the patient side, research also shows us that most families think that snoring is a sign of good sleep instead of snoring being a sign of sleep disorder breathing. So I think a first barrier is just unrecognized risk for patients, so they may not be bringing this up with pediatricians. And even when it is identified, there aren't a lot of sleep centers around the country. We're fortunate to have one here at CHOP that's accredited by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. But, you know, that can be a barrier for providers and patients too, even if they do recognize it, where do we send people for further evaluation or treatment? You've identified so many barriers and that piece about the patient and family's perspective on snoring is so fascinating. So we, as you mentioned, don't have a lot of time and we may focus on some of the patients who are higher risk. So who are some of the high risk populations for sleep disordered breathing who maybe we should particularly pay attention to? That's a great question because there are several high-risk populations for sleep disorder breathing, and one of those are the children with obesity. There are data showing that the rates of sleep disorder breathing and obstructive sleep apnea in particular have increased along with the increases in obesity in the U.S. society. 
In addition, there are children, for example, those with trisomy 21 who have hypotonia associated to this syndrome and also some midfacial hypoplasia that are in an increased high risk for obstructive sleep apnea. Research has also shown that those kids who were born premature have greater incidence of obstructive sleep apnea when they are in school age. In addition to that, there is an association about obstructive sleep apnea and families with low socioeconomical status that may be due also to the environment where they live in. For example, they may be exposed to more allergens or air quality or things that may affect the upper airway to induce the growth of tonsils and adenoids. In addition to that, there are racial disparities as well in the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea, and at least in the United States, has been shown to be more frequent in children of African-American descent. So now that we've identified that we should be doing this screening and that there are particular populations at high risk, what are some of the ways that you are working on to help us improve our screening and treatment at CHOP? So we have been incredibly fortunate to work with the Possibilities Project at CHOP, which aims to reimagine primary care services in order to make these services more efficient, more effective. And so what we've been able to do is implement a system-wide universal screening for sleep-disordered breathing at each child well visit in line with the AAP guidance. One of the important things in trying to reduce disparities and trying to really make sure that we're monitoring sleep disorder breathing is to have an easy way to screen for it that populates right in the medical record so that physicians, nurse practitioners, and other clinicians don't have to search around for these results or create their own sort of template. So first, we implemented this universal screening for sleep disorder breathing, asking caregivers and parents who are bringing their child in for a well visit whether or not their child is snoring three or more times uh, per week. And that's really the question that the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends as a first identifier for sleep disorder breathing. Now, with funding from the Department of Pediatrics Round 8 Chairs Initiative, we have another project called the Sleep Pass Project, where we're trying to investigate whether increased clinical decision supports, so increased patient-facing questions and provider-facing resources, could help with identifying children who are having lots of symptoms of sleep disorder breathing and would be likely to benefit from having a sleep study or visiting at our sleep center. In addition to the sleep disorder breathing questions, I'll also note that we have some helpful screening questions for other sleep concerns like not getting enough sleep or having a sleep problem. I love all of these tools and it's a great use of the electronic record. Let's talk a little more specifically now about obstructive sleep apnea and get into why we're doing all of this screening. So often parents mention to me that their child snores. What other information should I be asking about their sleep to help me make a clinical distinction between snoring that isn't obstructive versus OSA, which I would want to refer for further evaluation? That's another great question as well, because snoring has been reported to occur in most children with obstructive sleep apnea. And actually, studies have shown that snoring as a symptom alone is not good to determine who has primary snoring versus who has obstructive sleep apnea. Some other symptoms that are really helpful are that typically parents are more able to report this in younger kids because they observe them sleep. For example, if the parents have observed their child stop breathing, having pauses in breathing, 
or struggle to breathe are also predictors of OSA that are better than snoring by itself. So typically, in terms of symptoms, we say snoring and something else, either pauses in breathing or struggle to breathe at night or labor breathing during sleep. And in addition to that, we have to think about daytime consequences. For example, are the children more hyperactive? Maybe they have some difficulty following instructions or those who are older than five, they're having nocturnal enuresis. Those also are good indicators of obstructive sleep apnea. I have to say, though, I have a bias, so I would refer everybody for a sleep study <laughs> because so I do think that it's important to know whether the kids with primary snoring can also have some behavioral abnormalities. We're doing a study to further analyze that so we don't know for sure whether they need to be treated as well. But uh, there is a possibility, and there's some reports in the literature, that primary snoring is not as safe or innocuous as it was supposed to be. That's fascinating. And like you mentioned, we think about sleep studies for children who have a concern may have OSA, but besides them, who else could benefit from a sleep study? Yes, we do sleep studies as well. For example, when we are studying uh, periodic lip movements during sleep, these are children who during sleep have stereotype movements that many times make them arouse so they don't have sufficient sleep and they can also have some daytime symptoms. Typically, they can report to the families that they have urge to move their legs, mostly in the evenings, or they have creepy, crawly feelings in their legs in the evenings as well. It's been associated with low ferritin, and we do sleep studies for that. We also sometimes do sleep studies when there is a question whether a parasomnia, for example, a sleep terror or a sleepwalking are associated with seizures. So in that case, we bring the kids to the lab and we also do an extended seizure montage to know if something like that is going on. And we also do sleep studies for the titration of CPAP, of continuous positive airway pressure for the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. And in those cases, the kids come to the lab, we put them on CPAP and we try different pressures to make sure that they are in the right setting to overcome their obstructive sleep apnea. And also at CHOP, because it's a quaternary center, we also do sometimes sleep studies in children who are on ventilators for the same reason, to titrate their needs. Great. That really helps expand who I might be sending for a sleep study. Now, for providers who maybe have not seen a sleep study report in a while, can you tell us about what information this sleep study yields to us as providers? Uh, based on sleep study as a provider, we'll report useful information, for example, about the sleep architecture, which would be important to know whether, for example, the child has all the percentages that are recommended. Typically, we put that in the report, whether the night was typical or atypical and whether they hit all the stages of the sleep that they should hit. And also for the provider, it's very important to know about the saturation during sleep, whether there are drops in saturation that are unexplained. And many times we encounter that. When we study children, for example, who are former prematures, and they may not have, in this case, obstructive sleep apnea, but they still have some respiratory issues. And something that is very important, and we do it in children all the time, and in adults I know they don't do it that much or as often, is to measure the CO2 that is expired, the entitled CO2. Also, that gives uh, very good information about how the child is ventilating during sleep. So for the primary care pediatrician, I would say, focus on the sleep architecture to see if the night is normal or not, and then in the respiratory indices that are highlighted in the report, which are the obstructive apnea, hypopnea index, saturation, and the entitled CO2. Great. 
And when I'm talking to patients who I might be referring for a sleep study, what can I tell them to expect when they go in for their study? Um, a fun night in the lab. <laughs> they have to come with a parent. They have to arrive around 6.30 p.m. And then they get all the leads placed on the head for the EEG. They also get a nasal cannula to measure the air that comes in and out of the nose. They have two belts, one in the chest and the abdomen, to measure the movements. They have the pulse socks all night. They have the leg leads, which basically there are stickers, and everything is video recorded. Since when I explain this, it sounds super daunting. We made a video some years ago, and it's in YouTube. If you go to YouTube and you put in the search box, CHOP Sleep Center, a video will come up and it will show the families what is expected during the night. I should note, too, that in addition to those resources, along with that universal screening for sleep disorder breathing and sleep problems, now in the medical record at CHOP, when primary care clinicians see that information and there's an abnormal screening, like a yes response to snoring, there are different links that pop up to patient family education handouts that we've recently updated and revised. One of those tells families all about sleep disorder breathing. It's called obstructive sleep apnea. That's what the title of it is, I believe. And then we have another one about your child's sleep study, which provides that link for the sleep study video on YouTube. So that can be a really helpful resource as well. That's great that we have all of those resources to help patients understand what this might look like when they arrive. Now, as a primary care pediatrician, I hear concerns about kids getting to sleep all of the time. <laughs> These conversations start immediately when they're newborns, and they continue at each developmental stage as sleep issues continue to evolve. So, Dr. Williamson, can you speak to the importance of good sleep hygiene and give me some examples of good hygiene that I should be recommending to my patients? Absolutely. One of the most important things to establish early on, even with little babies, is a bedtime routine. And I do recommend this at all ages, including adolescents and even their parents and for myself as well. Having a bedtime routine we think helps cue the body that it's time for sleep. In younger children, we also know that just having a bedtime routine, which usually consists of two to four activities moving in the direction of the bedroom, something like brushing teeth, changing, reading a book, something like that, that has a dose response association with good sleep outcomes for young children. So the more nights of the week parents or caregivers follow a bedtime routine for their child, the better the child's sleep is with regard to falling asleep as well as sleep duration. I think another important factor, especially um, after about 12 months of age, is sleep duration. There are national guidelines from the National Sleep Foundation about how much children need as they grow and develop. And many parents are really surprised to see what hours of sleep are recommended. For example, preschoolers between the ages of three and five are supposed to be getting about 10 to 13 hours of sleep total, and that does include naps. When they move into middle childhood, it's more like 9 to 11 hours. Although, of course, sleep needs are different for every child. But that is something to keep in mind. And for the clinicians listening, we do have a link in the sleep screening to the sleep duration guidelines in case you do have patients who seem not to be getting enough sleep. 
Other things that I really recommend are being aware of what kinds of drinks your child is consuming. So making sure to avoid caffeine, which can be hidden in a lot of different drinks. So many families are also surprised to learn that caffeine is in diet tea, sweet tea, iced tea, green tea, as well as in some types of root beer and in some orange sodas like Sunkist. The final thing I'll say is avoiding naps too much at older ages. So we know that when children are starting to grow out of having a nap, they may nap here and there. But for all of those families with children going back to elementary school, middle school, and high school, napping after school can really make it hard to fall asleep at bedtime. And so what can help is keeping as regular of a sleep schedule as you can, especially as we move back into school and on the weekends too. Of course, that does not mean wake your teenager at 7 a.m. when they would typically need to get up, let's say if they're doing any in-person school this fall, but it does mean trying to make sure that they don't sleep too late in the day, like past 10 a.m. Because again, as that schedule gets off, it can be really tough to get enough hours of sleep at night when they transition back to the school week. Those are great tips. But now if children still are having trouble falling asleep, I'm wondering, Dr. Tapia, if you recommend the use of melatonin. It depends on the case. So typically we evaluate the children together with the sleep psychologist, for example, with Dr. Williamson, and we come up with a behavioral plan. And many times we need to supplement with something to help them shift back to the time zone that we are. In adolescence, for example, it's not uncommon that we'll stay late at night and then and during the summertime, right, they shift all the time. They may go to bed 1 a.m. and then they wake up 10 a.m., 11, 11 a.m. the following day and they need to go to school the next week. So in those cases, we use melatonin in a acute setting. And typically, we tell the families to give the melatonin 30 minutes to one hour before the desired time that the child will go to sleep. You know, in thinking about families where kids are having a hard time falling asleep and getting up overnight, I think a couple things are really important to keep in mind before pediatricians think about melatonin. And we do also have a new patient family education handout on that that I'll promote. But one thing to keep in mind is that it's really normal to wake up overnight. So it's not really the night wakings that are not normal. It's more that kids have a hard time falling back to sleep. Everyone wakes up overnight two to six times. So it's good to keep that in mind, I think, as children grow. And the other key piece of advice is that whatever you need to fall asleep at bedtime, you'll need to get back to sleep after normal night awakenings. So if a child is used to falling asleep with a bottle, with the television, cuddling with a parent, then that's probably what they're looking for overnight to get back to sleep. And so there are strategies that can help with that, you know, and I definitely encourage families to take a look at some of those patient family education handouts. Um, and there's also more supports available through the CHOP Sleep Center. Those are all great resources and points. I love that tip that whatever you need to fall asleep is what you need when you wake up again <laughs> to fall back asleep in the middle of the night. That's a good point for us to all remember. Now, a lot of the things that we've been talking about occur overnight, but sometimes sleep disordered breathing results in daytime symptoms as well. Can you discuss that? Yes, that's a great question as well, because most of the time overall in, in older kids where parents don't see them sleep, the main question when they come to us are the daytime symptoms. 
So those can be the right of insufficient sleep or if you want of not having a restful night of sleep because they're trying to breathe in the case of severe obstructive sleep apnea. And those are typically attention deficit. They can mimic ADHD, for example. They have issues with executive functions such as following orders or commands or doing things that require certain concentration, for example, such as driving. And that's something that also we notice in the adult literature. In addition to that, in older kids, you can have excessive daytime sleepiness. Typically in younger kids, when they don't sleep well, you will see them being super hyper. But the older we get, then the daytime sleepiness arises. And these are children who, for example, fall asleep in school or they fall asleep in the bus, they fall asleep watching TV. And those are the main concerns that the families come to us. And with the rising rates of mental health concerns in pediatric patients, I think it's important that we discuss how sleep and mental health are connected. Absolutely. And there is a close link between sleep and mental health. So, you know, first from just a sleep health perspective, the reason why we say getting enough sleep at night is important is because we have lots of studies that show getting too little sleep really impacts next day behavior and learning as well. So children who aren't sleeping long enough are more irritable during the day. They have difficulty with attention regulation. They also may be more likely to fall asleep in school, as Ignacio mentioned. But from a mental health perspective as well, we know that many children who have mental health difficulties also have some disruption in their sleep. And it probably goes both ways. So if you have a poor night of sleep, you're up a lot, you may be more likely to be irritable or have difficulty regulating emotion during the day. At the same time, if you, for example, are struggling with depressed mood or having some anxiety symptoms, that comes around a lot at night. So thinking about older kids, you know, being alone in the dark is sort of the perfect time for worries to creep in. So it can really go that direction as well, where kids may be having increased mood concerns and then having a hard time settling at night and really struggling, which in turn might really exacerbate the mood and functioning the next day. So it becomes kind of a cycle. And we see that with regard to both mood disorders or what's called internalizing concerns like depression and anxiety. And we also see that with externalizing concerns. So for children with attention problems like ADHD or oppositional problems, we know that sleep and behavior are really linked. And so in many cases, we do recommend integrating sleep as a focus of treatment for behavioral health concerns. Well, I have learned so much from both of you. We've covered a lot of information, and I know you've pointed us to some great resources, which we will link to on our website. We are very fortunate to have a sleep center, including both of you at CHOP, and we are always happy to answer questions and take referrals as well. So thank you so much for joining us today. And to everyone who's listening, hopefully we didn't put you to sleep. Um, I avoided all my sleep puns until the very end. But thank you so much, Dr. Williamson and Dr. Tapia. Thank you so much for having us. Sleep well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 